Well, why don't you go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15. We're going to look today at verses 11 through 32. We continue our series in Luke today, the series that we've called uh, Radical Love. And today here in Luke 15, 11 through 32, we come to a parable that Jesus told uh, that has most commonly been known as the parable of the prodigal son. Now, many of your Bibles, uh, many of the Bibles that you have translation will probably either identify this story as the parable of the prodigal son or perhaps as the parable of the lost son. Uh, if you have an NIV Bible, which the joke is that NIV stands for necessary in vineyard. <laughs> How many of you have heard that joke before? Yeah. Wow. So that was new for a lot of you. So the laughs were really not very good considering how new the... the. Uh... By the way, how many of you were here Wednesday night? Was David McCreary hilarious or what? It was very, very funny. So for the rest of you who weren't able to make it, if we ever again host David McCreary, I highly recommend it. He was very, very funny. Uh, so in the NIV Bible, uh, it's indicated as the parable of the lost son. And the parable is about a lost uh, son, but it isn't only about a lost son. Uh, it's actually about two sons, two brothers, and their father. It's about a younger brother who leaves home, squanders his inheritance with careless and extravagant living. Uh, this younger brother is the one that the story is often named for. But the story is also about the older brother who dutifully stays home and serves the father. Of course, we find out in the story, and we're going to look at this more closely next week, that while the older brother dutifully serves, he is not all that he appears to be. Uh, among the problems that uh, exist within the older brother are things like resentfulness, being unforgiving, and being jealous. And so Daryl Bach refers to uh, this older brother as the begrudging brother. And so the story is about the, the prodigal son, the lost son, but the story is also about the begrudging son. But that's not all. The story is also about the father. In fact, it's my belief that the story is most about the father and the way that he responds to his two wayward sons. Anyone familiar with the story knows that the younger son is wayward. That's very obvious. A lost is the term that's used, separated from the leadership and care of his father. But the story actually ends up revealing that both sons are wayward, just in different ways. Both are lost, just in different ways. And so the story shows us how this father re responds to both of his sons who are lost in their, own unique, uh, in their own unique ways. Again, one is obviously lost. The other doesn't appear lost, but is. And so Bach tells us that the story is also about the forgiving father. And so the story is about two lost sons and a father who loves them both very much, even in their lostness, and deals very graciously with them. So I've titled today's message, Two Lost Sons and a Loving Father. 
It's going to be a two-part message, and today we're going to look primarily at the part of the story that deals with the lost younger brother and his interaction with the loving father. And then next week we'll look primarily at the part that deals with the older brother and his interactions with the father. And as we enter into this uh, two-part message, I want to commend a book for your reading. I also want to acknowledge the significant contribution that this book uh, has made to today's message. Uh, I am uh, borrowing fairly liberally from the book. I just want you to know that uh, right up front today. Uh, I will try to say so if I'm using direct quotes from the book, uh, but just the the book has uh, influenced the message much more than even just the direct quotes uh, that I will uh, give. So the book is The Prodigal God. Uh, It's by Timothy Keller. And I cannot overemphasize how beneficial I think it would be to you Uh, to get this book and to read it, and really to read anything uh, by Keller. I I believe that this book is the best exposition of the parable of the lost son uh, that I have ever read or heard. In fact, I am so impressed by this book that I considered doing something today that I, I would have never dreamed I would consider. I considered standing up here and just reading the central chapters uh, of this book to you. And by the time I was done with the message, I thought, well, might as well have read the book because, you know, <laughs> just, just joking, just joking. But, but I, I'm very impressed by the book. And though I could not get myself to just stand here and read the chapters to you, uh, I just want to commend this to you so, so highly. So I won't ask for a show of hands, but somebody needs to say, yes, I will read the book. Uh, Amazon, christianbooks.com, get it really cheap. Lifeway, uh, you can get this book tomorrow and read it. Very, very good. So if you have your place there in chapter 15, verse 11, uh, please follow along as I read uh, this entire section of Scripture. Now, this happens immediately after Jesus told the stories, told the parables of the lost sheep uh, and the lost coin that we dealt with last week. So here's how it reads. Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son, Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. 
For the Son of Mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called to one of the servants and he asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied. Your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Amen. What a wonderful passage of Scripture. So verses 11 through 24 of this parable deal primarily with the younger son and the father. The son comes to his father and he asks, for his share of the father's estate. The request was then, much as it would remain now, a highly disrespectful request. Uh, In those days when a father died, it was customary uh, that the oldest son would receive a double portion of what the other children in the family received. And so if we assume, uh, for, for the sake of the story, that these uh, two boys were the only heirs of this particular father, the oldest would have received two-thirds of the estate, and the youngest would have received the remaining uh, third. But here's the thing. The division of the estate did not happen until the father died. And so this request was very selfish This request was very heartless. It basically was the young man coming to his dad and saying, Give me now what I will get when you are dead. To ask this of a father, especially in the culture of that time, amounted to wishing the father dead. Keller writes this, the younger son was saying essentially that he wants his father's things, but not his father. His relationship to the father has been a means to the end of enjoying the father's wealth, but now he is weary of the relationship. He wants out now. And the father's response surprises us. It surprises us even more if you think of the culture at the time. In such a strongly patriarchal culture where great respect and deference was expected from children and great respect and deference is still appropriate from children. I'll just put that in there. (laughs) Here's what the crowd would have expected. Here's what they would have thought the father would, would do, how he would respond to the son's request. They would have expected the story to go that the father drove the son off of his estate as he was beating him to the property line. I don't mean racing him, I mean beating him 
to the property line. They would have expected the son to end up with nothing but a black eye. Maybe a couple of broken ribs. They expected physical blows, a good beating. But that's not what the father does. He simply grants the boy's request. And something that we often don't think about in this story is it's very likely that that this father's uh, uh, wealth was tied up in the land. And so it was probably required that he sell a significant portion of his land holdings to accommodate this heartless request of his son. And so not only was it a, a, a heartless request, but it was likely not an easy request to grant. It required a lot of effort to grant the request, and yet the father did. And we are told that once he had his inheritance, quote, not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered what had been so costly to his father, what had been so hurtful to his father for him to receive. He squandered it all in wild living. Here's what the younger son, the younger brother had done. He had devised a strategy for acquiring happiness and fulfillment. And here was his strategy, self-centered living. His strategy for happiness and fulfillment was self-centered living. Can we identify with the younger son at all? How many of us have adopted this strategy for happiness? for acquiring fulfillment in life. Uh, Keller uses the term self-discovery to describe the younger son's strategy. It's a much different approach than the older son, but we're going to see next week that they're both really after the same thing. In the time that this parable was told, uh, there were were people who would pursue this path of self-discovery, but in the time we live, far more people are choosing this option, the path of self-discovery as the way to find happiness and fulfillment. And this strategy for happiness basically says that, that we must be free to pursue our own goals and to pursue self-actualization without any concern for custom or convention. Keller writes, in this view, the world would be a far better place if tradition, prejudice, authority, and other barriers to personal freedom were weakened or removed. And we see what the son viewed as one of the barriers in the story. The younger son viewed the father as an impediment to his happiness and fulfillment. He needed to be out from under the father, he thought to be fully free and to realize the happiness that he desired. And we often allow ourselves to become convinced of this very same thing, that we are blocked from happiness, that we are blocked from fulfillment by God, our Father. And so we do much like what this young young, uh, man did. We remove God from the throne that he sits on. And we place ourselves on the throne that is rightfully his. We, we throw off the established authority that God has placed over our lives. 
God being the ultimate authority, but under Him there, there are authorities that God has placed there, things like parents, things like the church. And we free ourselves to do our own thing. We convince ourselves that God's demands on our lives are limiting our happiness and our enjoyment, so we throw off His rule, we remove Him from the center of life, We remove him from his rightful leadership. We set ourselves up as the captain of our own ship, the ruler of our own domain. We dethrone the rightful king and we enthrone ourselves. And this is a good definition of being lost. Uh, Very similar to what we pointed out uh, last week. Being, Being lost is being out from under the rule of the rightful, loving ruler of your life. Removing yourself from the care of the one who loves you the most. You see, friends, God is not an impediment to our happiness. I'm not the only one that's thought this, I I know. Many of you sitting here today have at some point in your life, and I think a number of us today probably are sitting here, and we have been convinced by the enemy of our souls that God is the impediment to our happiness. But he's not. Living life for him, living life in relationship with him, living life the way that he instructs us to live it is actually the key to happiness and fulfillment. You see, I I say this a lot, at least I feel like I say it a lot, but God created us. He created everything that is. And so he knows how this thing works best. He knows what things will contribute to your happiness and he knows what things will wreck your happiness. He sets things off limits to us primarily because he knows that they are inherently destructive for our lives. Not because he's wanting to keep you from something good, but we decide that we know best. Like this younger brother. And so we go our own way. We throw off authority and we pursue whatever we want to pursue. All of us have pursued the path that this younger brother did. And right now, some of us in here are no doubt pursuing that path. We've set ourselves up as the supreme ruler and we do whatever we want with no thought for God and no thought for anyone else but ourselves. If we want to drink until we pass out because it's fun... I loved what Ben said a few weeks ago about, you know, drinking until you're sick. Like, what's fun about that? I've never one time looked at a sick person and thought, man, that looks fun. <laughs> I, uh, when I was in my early 20s, I went to, um, went to a place on, uh, I didn't plan to tell this, so we're getting into dangerous territory right now. <laughs> But uh, I went to uh, this place on campus with a couple of my friends from southern Ohio. Uh, I think it was called Papa Joe's. Anybody remember that? They had these huge buckets of beer they would put on the table that were probably just full of germs and diseases of all kinds. And, uh, and so, you know, all my friends are, you know, dipping their, you, you dipped your cup into the beer. It's just, it's just disgusting. So, uh, so... 
I don't know when the first time was that I took a sip of beer, but I knew I didn't like it. But I was trying to fit in, so I dip my cup in, take a little drink, turn around, like, ah, how could anybody drink this stuff? <laughs> and so, you know, for the hour or so that we were there, I think I, you know, drank about that much. But anyway, the point of the story is <laughs> my friends drank a lot more. And so as we were leaving, they, they did the really cool uh, college thing, and right out on High Street, they got sick. <laughs> and a thought that never occurred to me is, man, I wish I would have drank as much as they did because <laughs> that looks really fun. <laughs> and it's cool, too. As people are driving past, you know what they're all thinking. Look at that cool guy over on the side who's sick. He's awesome. Thank you, thank you. And my apologies to you who thought that I had never tasted beer. I am sorry. It was two decades ago, so you, you can forgive me. It was a long, long time ago. <laughs> uh, so it's my fault they got sick. <laughs> we want to spend money that we don't have to buy things that we don't need. Because we're convinced that that will make us happy. And so we buy, buy, buy. We decide that the best way to be happy is to get others to do whatever we want them to do. And we figure out that the best way to get other people to do what we want is to tell a lot of lies. And so we just make a habit of telling people whatever we need to tell them to get what we want out of them. The scripture says the young man squandered his wealth in wild living. He did what he wanted when he wanted with no thought of the consequences for himself or anyone else, with no thought of where the present path could lead, uh, or at least with not a thought of it, enough thought of it to be willing to change his course. And of course, he gave no thought to his father. And probably some of us here today are on very much a similar path to that. We've thrown off restraint. We've thrown off the Father's rule of our lives. Don't raise your hand, but have you? Have you? Is that where you're at today? Look at the end result of the path of self-discovery. Verse 14. After he had spent everything... There was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. Now, there's an awful lot we could say about that that I'm not going to take the time to go into today. But friends, this is a picture of where the path of self-discovery, where, where the strategy of self-centeredness leads, it leads to bankruptcy. His wealth is gone. He has absolutely nothing to eat. And I find the last part of verse 16 to be very interesting. No one gave him anything. No one gave him anything. Whoever it is that he had been engaging in the wild living with, 
They were gone. No one was there to help him in his time of need. And this is where the self-centered life leads. This is, this is where the life devoted to self-discovery, throwing off authority and tradition leads. It leads to bankruptcy. All types of bankruptcy. It leads to, can lead to financial bankruptcy. can lead to moral bankruptcy, physical bankruptcy, emotional bankruptcy. It leads you to the place where you just don't have anything. You're spent. You, you, you just, you've spent your emotions. You've, you, you've just spent your physical strength. And everything you thought would bring happiness and fulfillment actually leads you to a place of intense lack. The, the drinking that we thought was so fun has led us to a place of being penniless. And behind us is a trail of broken relationships. The spending that we thought would bring us happiness instead has put us deep in debt. And now we are stressed because we have to borrow from one line of credit to pay another line of credit. And we can't hardly sleep at night because we're afraid that it's all about to crash in on us. We're not going to be able to move the money around much longer and, and it's going to come to the place where we've got a face that we... we we create a situation that's not, not workable. The lying that we thought would manipulate what we wanted out of people has instead driven everybody away from us. The improper relationships, the sinful physical relationships outside of God's plan for physical intimacy that we thought would be so fulfilling and so exciting and, and make us so happy instead of left us feeling completely isolated, completely alone. The exact opposite of what was promised. The path of the younger brother leads to bankruptcy. And some of us here today who have been following this path are probably at the place today where you feel absolutely spent. There's just nothing left. The money's gone or it's about gone. The friendships are broken seemingly beyond repair, nearly beyond repair. You don't have any peace. You live with intense regret. You're just spent, bankrupt. And if that's where you find yourself, if that's where you find yourself, then you need to do what the younger brother finally did. We're told that the young man finally came to his senses. Verse 17. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. Friends, it is always a good idea to decide to choose to return to the father. Jesus describes it as the young man coming to his senses. 
It is a lack of good sense that causes us to throw off the care, the love, and the rule of God. I don't, I don't mean to be insulting, but that's just the way it is. It is a lack of good sense that says we're going to do this. And when circumstances finally force us to reconsider the Father, it is a return to good sense when we say, yes, I will go back to him. And, and so this younger son, he, he comes up with a plan. He will return to the Father. But he knows that he does not deserve anything from the Father. And by the way, this, this is the attitude that we need to have toward God our Father. When we have thrown off his rule, we need to come back and we need to understand how completely bankrupt we are, that we don't deserve anything from him. And so his plan is to return, to acknowledge his sinfulness and to apologize, and then he's going to offer to serve as one of his father's hired men. The hired men were the lowest ranking servants. And so this son is going to ask for the opportunity to come back in the lowest position possible in his father's estate. So with this plan in place, he got up and he went to his father. And then what Jesus does is he paints a picture for us of the unconditional, undying love the father had for his son. And in painting this picture for us, he is teaching us of the loving, unconditional, unqualified care and concern that God has for us. He is teaching us how much God the Father loves each one of us, even when we have rejected him. So verse 20 tells us, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. The father was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. Now, remember the last interaction of the father and son. Remember how hurtful the son had been. And yet this is the father's response upon seeing his son. This is a loving father. The son apologizes. He acknowledges that he's unworthy to be the son, but before he can even propose his plan of becoming a hired servant, we read this, but the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Not the robe of the hired men. Bring the best robe. Put a ring on his finger. Put sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead And is alive again, he was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. A loving father, a forgiving father. He welcomes the son back who had been so thoughtless, so unkind, so reckless. He doesn't just welcome him back as a servant. He welcomes him back as a son. Friends, there are some things that God wants us to know from this. And if you find yourself today feeling very much like you imagine this younger son felt when he was hungry and tending the pigs, 
very much like he felt as he was coming back to the Father and, and perhaps worried about how the Father was going to receive him. If you are here today and you can connect with those kind of feelings, you relate to those kind of feelings, here are a few things that God wants you to know. First of all, God wants you to know that he is willing to pardon any and every kind of sin and restore any and every kind of sinner. Any sin. Any and every kind of sinner. You know, this offense that the son had committed against this father, it does not get any worse than this. He had completely rejected the love and care and rule of the father. He had wished him dead. It doesn't get any worse than that. And yet the father welcomed him home. He loved him. He was compassionate toward him. It did not matter what the son had done. The father welcomed him. And you need to know that it does not matter what you have done. It doesn't matter how deep your sin. It does not matter how rebellious you have been. And I sense that there is someone here who this very week, you did something that that you just can't believe you did. You almost didn't come to church today because you just, you just feel so uncomfortable with God right at this moment because of what happened. And here's what you need to know. The Father in this parable represents God our Father. And Jesus wants you to know that God is willing to pardon every sin and restore you into a right relationship with Himself no matter what what you did. He's not angry with you. He loves you. He is compassionate toward you. And he is willing to welcome you back today. You see, the parable is meant to convey this truth. There is no sin that is a match for God's grace. No sin is a match for God's grace. There's nothing you've ever done that God's grace can't cover. God's grace is greater than your disgrace, no matter how significant your disgrace is. It is. There's this song I wish I could sing. I would sing it for you, but God's grace is greater than all my sin, it says. And friends, God's uh, God's grace is greater than all of your sin. In telling this parable, Jesus also wants us to know that nothing merits the favor of God. The the son went back with this plan to, to get hired as a servant, to serve in the lowliest position, and hopefully over time to begin to pay back his debt to the father. But the father doesn't even allow the debt repayment discussion to happen. He welcomes the son back, restores him to the family with no debt repayment required. 
Friends, this is a a key truth of the Bible. It's a key truth of the gospel. And that is that you cannot earn your way with God. You cannot work off the debt that you've racked up with God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tells us this so beautifully. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not from yourselves. It's the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The parable lets us know that we can't earn the favor of God. We can only humbly receive it. We can only humbly receive his forgiveness and his free gift of salvation. So no matter how deep the debt you have, you are not asked to repay it. You don't don't have to pray five hours a day for the rest of your life as though that's paying off a debt to God. You don't have to have to go to church every Sunday, though you should, to pay off your debt to God. You're not paying off a debt to God by coming to church on Sunday. You don't go to small group every week to pay off a debt to God. You just receive His free gift of salvation. You just throw yourself on the mercy of God. You you just throw yourself on his grace and his mercy. You trust that he has promised that he's canceled your debt once and for all through the blood of Jesus Christ. And you say, yes, apply that to me. I want that. I want to benefit from that. I receive that. And finally, Jesus wants us to know again. He stressed in the parable of the lost sheep. He stressed in the parable of the lost coin. And and now he wants to drive it home again that when a lost person is found, God rejoices, God celebrates. So if you're lost today, you know you've thrown off God's rule. You you know that you've been living a self-centered life. You don't have to worry about how God is going to respond when you decide to return. This parable assures us that we never have to fear returning to God. He always sees our return as a cause for celebration. Always. No matter how many times you've walked away, when you return, God celebrates. God rejoices. God welcomes you. And finally, the parable holds this message for all of us who call Christ Savior and Lord. God wants us to cooperate with Him in properly receiving those who are lost and then return. Like our Father, we should see the return of a person who's been far from God as a reason for celebration. Next week, we're going to see what it revealed about the older brother that he did not see the return of the younger brother as a cause for celebration. It it revealed something very bad about his heart. It, It revealed something very wrong. In fact, I'll just give you a sneak peek. It revealed that he was in at least as bad a shape as the younger brother it probably reveals that he was in worse shape than the younger brother. His heart was probably further from God, further from the Father, even though he looked good from what people could observe. 
we are called to see the return of lost people the way the Father does, as a cause for great rejoicing. And we're to respond to those who return in the same way, with love, with compassion, with arms open, welcoming them, welcoming them home. And so if you're here today and you want to return to the Father, God Himself and those who really know Him as Savior and Lord are ready to show you love, are ready to respond to you with compassion, and are ready to welcome you back to the Father, and are ready to rejoice at your return. That's what we want to do today. Why don't you stand?